Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in for the past couple of months uh, in the book of Exodus. And so um, if, you're, if you're new with us, the themes that we've been looking at in Exodus are how really the story of Exodus is our story, right? That the story of a people uh, set free from slavery, led through the wilderness to a promised inheritance. This story that happened thousands and thousands of years ago uh, in Christ is our story, that we've been set free uh, from a life of sin and death and slavery, that we are being led uh, on a pilgrimage in a world that we don't understand and that often is hard and confusing to us, and that we're being led to an inheritance that Jesus has promised uh, for us. And so uh, this morning, our reading will be Exodus 31, verses 12 through 18. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? The Lord said to Moses, oh no, I'm sorry. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, when we think about uh, the work of 19th century uh, evangelical Christians in England, uh, we think mostly about uh, the work of William Wilberforce, uh, the man who persuaded by his Christian faith a member of parliament who worked to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. Justly, we remember uh, this story, but he was one of a part of a group of people, all of whom were seeking to apply their Christian faith to the reform of society, uh, to seek to lend uh, their faith into the public square to bend uh, the public life of their culture towards justice and goodness. Less known than Wilberforce is the work of one of his good friends, a man named Samuel Plimsoll. He was another member of parliament motivated by his faith to seek to do his work to modify and reform society. 
But he seized on a different problem, one that can seem a bit more obscure to us than the, the clear and pressing problem of slavery. The social issue that gripped him was the number of people in England dying unnecessarily in shipping accidents. Since the, uh, the insurance industry, I know we've got a couple people involved in insurance here, uh, really launched at the beginning of the 19th century. And so merchants were able to begin to place heavy amounts of insurance on their ships as they sent them out, uh, in this case, from England. In fact, the insurance deal was so sweet in those early days that they actually stood to make money if the boat sank. So what these uh, shipping uh, leaders would do was they would pack the ships far beyond what the ships could actually carry. They would dangerously pack the ships and then send them off to sea, trusting that if they made the crossing with this uh, extra full load, that they would, be, they would make more money. And if the ship sank, they would make more money uh, because of the incredible amount of insurance uh, that they would be paid. It came to be that these ships uh, came to be known by sailors as coffin ships because so many people died on them. So in 1868, uh, in the town of Sheffield at Fullwood Chapel, Samuel Plimsoll announced that he would, quote, do all in his power to put an end to the unseaworthy ships owned by the greedy and unscrupulous. Five years later, in 1873, under his leadership, Parliament passed the Merchant Shipping Act, which required all ships, uh, and this is still in practice, to paint a line around their hull to mark the degree to which they could safely bear a load in the water. So you'd see a line around the ship, and if the, it was too loaded down and the line went below the water line, the ship would be unloaded, the owners would be fined, perhaps some of the property would be confiscated. This mark, this line around the ship, the load line, came to be known as the Plimsoll Mark, and it saved uh, countless lives in the shipping industry of the 19th century. Friends, do you know, do you know where the line is in your life beyond which you can't bear any more load? Right? All of us, uh, and this is really the invitation of the Sabbath, the invitation for us to consider, is the reality that each one of us has a limit. The Sabbath is like a white line painted through the middle of our lives, painted not on the outside of a ship, but across your calendar, across your schedule. I guess now both of those are across your phone. To say that you are a human being with limits, like you can't continue loading things on the deck of a ship and trust that it'll safely bear the load. You can't keep adding stuff to your life and believe that your body and your soul and your relationships will be able to bear the burden. The Sabbath, like a white line across our lives, invites us to consider the fact that there are limits to what we can bear. That as a creature, you have physical limits. You get tired and need rest. Your soul has limits. There's only so much that you can take on to yourself. Your productivity has limits. There's only so much, no matter how well you manage your time, there's only so much that you're going to get done in a day, in a week, or in a lifetime. I love this Plimsoll line as a metaphor for the Sabbath because I think the reality is that many of us 
have loaded far too much onto ourselves. Many of us uh, view our lives as a kind of a math problem to be solved, where there's never enough time to get done what we've committed to get done, where there's never enough uh, energy or talents or gifts to accomplish the agendas that we set for ourselves. The Sabbath reminds us that at some point we have to learn to say no. We have to learn to say enough is enough that I need to honor my limits. I need to give my, my body rest. I need to give my soul what it most needs to be fed by the presence of God in the midst of his people. I need to learn to rest and to enjoy and to delight and to worship. You know, I bet that at least half of the conversations that we have these days, half might be conservative, half of the conversations that begin with the question, how are you doing? At some point, go to include the words, busy, exhausted, stressed out, or anxious. 50% is probably extremely generous. I bet most of our conversations. At some point, if we push beyond, yeah, I'm fine. It gets to, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really busy. I'm struggling to keep up. I'm stressed. I've got too much on my plate. And so into that, the, the Sabbath comes as an invitation, an invitation to us from Jesus, from the one who says to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, most of us, I don't think, think about the Sabbath much at all. Um, if we do think about the Sabbath, it's usually something along the lines of, yeah, didn't Jesus do away with that? Right? We're aware of the fact that in the Gospels, the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath was often an occasion of debate and conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Right? That usually there's this cycle that plays itself out in the Gospel accounts where Jesus will do something on the Sabbath that the religious leaders and the Pharisees don't think he should have done that he heals somebody of a disease in the Sabbath. And the Pharisees look at him and say, no, 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 you're working, right? You're working on the Sabbath and you can't do that. Or there's another story where Jesus and his disciples are passing through a field and they're picking heads of grain and eating along the way. And people say, no, no, you, you shouldn't do that. And so we have this idea in our minds that whatever the Sabbath was, that Jesus somehow uh, so opposed the keeping of Sabbath that it's no longer relevant for us in a meaningful way in our Christian lives. And yet, what does Jesus tell us over and over again about his relationship to the law? Right? He says that I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right? The keeping of the Sabbath is a part of the Ten Commandments. Right? It's right there in the Ten Commandments. Jesus no more abolished the Sabbath commandment, then he abolished the commandment not to murder or not to commit adultery. Now, he fulfills it, right, just as he fulfills all of the commandments, right, just as in him we see the perfect keeping of every one of the commandments. We see it's uh, the full walking in a life of righteousness and fullness, that somehow what the Sabbath was always pointing to, Jesus has fulfilled for us that in a very real way, Jesus has become the Sabbath. Jesus doesn't say, take a day off, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, that I am the rest that you've been chasing after your whole life. 
that I am the peace that you're after, that I'm the one who can teach you how to rest, who can actually give you rest in my care. But he still calls us to keep the Sabbath, right? It's like, I mean, there's, there's nothing else that you would say, oh, you know what, Jesus fulfilled it, so I don't have to worry about it, right? Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, therefore I never have to worry about rest and worship in my life. I never have to establish a rhythm that preserves my soul and takes care of my body and nurtures my relationships. So Jesus has come to me and I'll teach you to rest. I'll give you rest. But we all do need to learn how to rest. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. This is why Jesus has to fulfill the commandment, right? He doesn't just underline it. He doesn't just say, no, no, listen, it's really important that you rest. He has to fulfill it because he acknowledges that there's a restlessness within us that won't rest until, we, until it's healed, right? That the problem that most of us have isn't that we don't know we should rest. It's not that we don't know that we should uh, take a pause from our lives to enter into real rest. It's that we don't know how. Uh, it's the fact that, that even when we do try to take a vacation, we do try to take a day off, the concerns of our jobs, the anxieties of our families, the, uh, the emotional concerns that we bear with us, they don't turn off instantly. Right? That there's a restlessness under our work that we need more than a shorter work day or more vacation time. If the last year has taught us anything, COVID's taught us that you can be in sweatpants all day long and still exhausted. <laughs> right? I remember at the start of COVID, there was this thought, like, oh, we're going to be working from home? You know, my kids are going to be home? It's going to be just, it's going to be like a break. And then a couple months in, you go, why am I tired all the time? Why does it feel like I'm not... <laughs> Instead of working uh, less, that work has just permeated my entire life. That it's invaded everything. That I'm always on in some way. We need more than a day off. We need more than a break. We need more than a vacation. We need to have that fundamental restlessness cured. To my knowledge, uh, Chariots of Fire was a movie uh, released in 1981. Uh, to my knowledge, it's the only movie that I've ever seen that's basically about the Sabbath. Uh, I don't know if they'll be making any more movies about the Sabbath. But it's the story of two British athletes in the 1924 Olympics, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams. They were at the very top uh, of the English track and field uh, sport at the time. They both competed in multiple events, but they were head-to-head -head rivals in the 100. And there were two men that approached their running in fundamentally different ways. Harold Abrams was a driven man. He was somebody who viewed uh, excelling at track as the way that he could prove himself to the world. In one particularly uh, moving moment, he describes the moment of the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. He says, I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I'm, first off, it takes me considerably longer than 10 seconds to run 100 meters. Without enough stretching, I would undoubtedly pull something. But we all have that thing in our lives 
that thing that says, if I'm good enough at this, that somehow it justifies my existence to my community, to my friends and family, to God, maybe just to myself, right? That if I can earn enough, then I'll justify my existence. If I can get the right kind of outcome for my relationships, if I can raise the family of my dreams, if I can, get, if I can just get these things, then it will justify my existence. Eric Liddell, on the other hand, was a devout Scottish Presbyterian. I promise the heroes of my stories are not all Presbyterians. The son of missionaries who grew up with a high value placed on the Sabbath, so high that when he found out that the opening heat of the 100 was going to be run on Sunday at the Olympics, he refused to run. He said, no, no, I, running is what I do, but living as a child of God is who I am. Right, that he understood there was a difference, there had to be a difference between what we do and our identity, between what we do and who we are. Can you imagine having such a deep-seated sense of your own identity before God that you knew that, yes, I, I'm passionate about my work, I love my work, I feel called to my work, but what I do is not who I am. That I carry around within me an inner freedom an inner rootedness that can say, I can work when I'm at work, and then I can turn it off. I can walk away. That thing inside me that never rests can relax and learn to rest. Look what's given here is the reason for our Sabbath rest in verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There's two basic reasons that are given for the keeping of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The, the first is, what we see related here, is that God worked for six days of creation and then he rested on the seventh. And therefore you join God in his rest. Uh, throughout Exodus, that's the reason that's given why the people should keep Sabbath. Uh, when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy, a slightly different reason is given. It's the reason of redemption. You were slaves in Egypt and you never got a day off. You were never allowed to rest. Your entire uh, value was in your productivity. But now that I've brought you out of Egypt, you're to rest and you're to give everyone under your employ. They're to, they're to enjoy rest as well. But here, what God taps into is this Pattern set down by God's own work in Genesis of six days of rest, of six days of work, and then a day of rest. For six days God worked, on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Have you ever read something like that and wondered why? Right? God doesn't have a body that gets tired, uh, that he needs to rest. God doesn't have limits like we have to our human capacity where we need rest. That God uh, could very well have continued working. Uh, sun up to sundown every day of eternity. Uh, and in a sense, he does. There's a type of work that God does each and every day, that he's not distant, he's engaged in our lives and in our world. But God rests because his work is finished. God rests because his creative work is done. Uh, commentators tell us that really what's going on here is that there's a comparison being drawn to the way that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, works and the way that all of the pagan deities worked. 
right? Think about the stories of the polytheistic religions that you've read about in, in school, maybe the Greeks and the Romans or the Canaanites that Israel would have lived with or the Egyptians, that the gods are constantly working. They're constantly driven by their emotions and their desires. They're constantly fighting against one another. They're constantly fighting against the people. But God creates, he finishes, and then he sits on his throne and he rules. So when he rests, he doesn't rest as in he's taking a nap. He rests as in a king who takes his throne and says that my rule is safe. I'm not threatened. I'm not worried. There's nothing that's going to happen in this creation that I can't overrule and override as its king. God can rest because his work is finished. Over and over, there's a pattern in the six days of creation. The pattern is God made, God saw, and he saw that it was good. When he makes human beings, he even says God saw that it was very good. Friends, we'll never learn to rest until we learn to look at our lives and to learn to look at our work and say it is good. It's very good. Right? That, that, that completion, the sense that the, the, the day's work is done and that our work is done and that our lives and our contribution is good is the key to finding rest. Right? I think that's one of the problems, one of the reasons why we don't rest is that for many of us, our jobs have gotten further and further removed from projects that you will ever complete. Right? There's never once been a day as a pastor that I've clocked out from work and said, feels good to be done. Feels good that everybody's in good shape. There's no issues. The church is humming. Right? And I bet for you, right? I mean, some, some of us have a, a job where you, you clock in and you clock out and maybe you work on a project and you, you leave and you go, it's done. But as work invades more and more of our lives, as we're constantly available by email, as things permeate, it's like we, we're working on a project that never finishes, right? And some of us leave that project and then come back to a family with children and, and a marriage and all of that, and that's a project that never finishes, right? You'll never lay your head down on your pillow and go, oh, it feels so good to know that my kids are done, right? That I, that I did a great job and it's over, right? No, it's a lifelong, all-consuming thing. So where on earth will we get the ability to go, to lay our heads down on our pillow and go, it's good, it's good. It'll only come when we begin to see our lives the way that God sees our lives in Christ. It'll only, it'll only take root in our hearts when we can imagine, when we can live in the reality that God looks at our lives. God looks at our lives and says, it is good. Where do we get that? I love the image uh, carried in all three of the synoptic gospels. When Jesus at his baptism comes up out of the water, right? And the Holy Spirit descends on him and the heavens open and a voice is heard from the Father saying, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you heard those words from God? From the, from the only one who really has any, any authority to evaluate our lives, the only one who has the, the power to judge us, if he were to look on your life and you were to hear his voice saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, and in them I am well pleased. It is good. She is good. She is very good. 
Well, friends, that is what the gospel offers us. John 1, but to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to be God's adopted sons and daughters, to be able to hear the voice of our Father over our lives saying, it is good. She is good. He is good. Not because of any goodness in ourselves, Right, Not because we've finally done enough, not because we ran those 10 seconds fast enough to justify ourselves, but because in Christ we're justified. In Christ we're adopted and received as God's own children. The last words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. Right? My work is finished. It's an invitation for us to consider that our work is finished that we can receive a completed work and know that we have nothing left to justify, nothing left to prove to God or to others. We can rest in knowing that the work is finished. Guys, this is really close uh, to the heart of what Christianity actually is. Right? There's all sorts of ways you could summarize Christianity, but, but it's hard to do much better than saying Christianity is an invitation to rest from our works. Right? I think we have the idea that to become a Christian means you stop your bad things. Right? That it means to come to Christ, I stop sinning. I stop doing my bad works. But nearly every religion on the face of the earth tells us to stop our bad works. Tells us to stop sinning, even if it doesn't use those words. Christianity is actually an invitation to stop your good works. Right? It's not just to cut the bad things out of your life. It's an opportunity to lay down that restlessness that says, I've got to do enough good to be, to be accepted. I've got to do enough good to justify my existence. It's an invitation not just to lay down our sin, although certainly that, but to also to lay down that inner drive to justify ourselves. Did you hear the words uh, that Eli and Rachel uh, affirmed in their membership vows. Do you receive and rest on Jesus alone for salvation? Rest is important enough to real Christianity that we put it in the vows, right? That it's to receive, to place our faith in Jesus, and then to rest. It's not to receive and then constantly live and wonder whether or not it's stuck. It's not to receive and then walk a thousand aisles every time somebody urges you to because you're not sure if, if you really, really have received him. It's not an invitation to receive him and then spend the rest of your life proving that you earned it. It's receive and then rest. It's receive and then rest. But notice there's something else about God's work on the seventh day. Every other day of creation... Uh, follows the same pattern. He saw that it was good. There was morning and there was evening the first day. There was morning and there was evening the second day. And on and on it goes. But the Sabbath, it never says that. It never says there was morning and evening of the seventh day. Because what, what the author is pointing us towards is that God enters into a Sabbath that doesn't end. That God doesn't enter into a period of rest and then Monday morning the alarm clock goes off and he goes back to work. He enters into a rest that's permanent. It's a rest of his enthronement. It's a rest that he invites us to. It's a rest that Jesus perfects when he finally defeats uh, the great and, and latest enemy of death itself. 
Hebrews chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Right, so Jesus has become our rest, but there's still out there for us a greater rest. There remains a forward-looking rest where we will enter into God's own rest. Where what we now see and worship by faith will see and worship by sight. The rest that we taste in the midst of this life will enter into fully. The delight that we catch in moments here will be ours forever. We've said that the tabernacle and the temple, which we've looked at in these previous chapters, was that bit of sacred space on earth, that bit where heaven and earth overlapped, and people could step into heavenly reality while on earth. Well, in the same way, the Sabbath is sacred time. It's where eternity touches into this world, where eternity future invades our present and invites us to enter into it. To invite invites us to enter in for one day here and now to what will preoccupy our eternity. Worship, rest, and delight. So, uh, as we wrap up, if the, if the Sabbath is meant to be all of that, right? if the Sabbath is meant to be us entering into the, the eternal rest of God here and now, if it's meant to be uh, literally uh, the eternal future of heaven invading our calendar, how are we doing It actually entering into it? It's meant for us to be so much more than just a Saturday with a worship service at the front end. I think that's how most of us tend to approach the Sabbath, right? The Lord's Day on Sunday. That it's, it's like Saturday, except for I have an appointment that I should keep if I'm able. Uh, I should go to church before I go on to whatever else it is that I need to do. It never enters into our hearts or our minds or our planning that there's things that we might do on a Saturday that we ought not do on a Sunday, uh, that, there, that Sunday offers us something deeper and more lasting than just a break. There's two dangers typically in the way that, that Christians approach the Sabbath. One is kind of a strict Sabbatarianism, right? It's, it's, it's a church that tries to micromanage what its people do and don't do on the Sabbath. Right, it's, it's the thing that Jesus was constantly dealing with the Pharisees over. You know, do you not get even too close to the line that you live constantly in the state of anxiety of whether you've done too much? And the other is a neglect of the Sabbath, a not entering into it with any kind of real intentionality. What we try to do in this church is to recognize that a lot of this is left to our consciences, right? A lot of this is left to, to you with God and you with your friends and family making a plan for how you need to rest and worship and delight on the Sabbath. But I do want to encourage you to think about it. Um, think about the fact that rest takes work, right? That if you just go along with, with, with whatever uh, everybody around you is doing, that likely you're not going to be keeping the Sabbath uh, in this kind of holy and sanctified way. That it does take you and your roommates, you and your family, sitting down and thinking about what gives us life, what spurns us on towards greater love and delight in God and worship of Him, what grants real rest to my soul, to my body, to my life, what do I enter into that's worthy of the name of real delight in the midst of our world? So much of our problems, I think, in this life, so much of my issues 
come because I don't really know how to rest. I don't know how to turn it off. I think so much of our addiction and our sin is fueled by this desire for escape. Right? I, need to, I need to somehow medicate and get away from the toil of this life because we haven't received and heard the invitation to enter into real rest, real joy, real delight, which can only be found in Christ himself. And he offers us week after week this rhythm of saying, come away, get away from the normal and the everyday and enter into a day that's given to you as a day of worship and joy and rest and delight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to worship you uh, with every bit of our lives. Lord, every day belongs to you, right? Every, every hour waking or sleeping is yours. And yet you call us uh, into this day, into this day to truly rest, to truly enter into the rest that you offer. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would quiet the restlessness of our hearts. Lord, that you would quiet that part of us that tells us that we, we have only to work and produce more and more, better and better, and instead to hear the voice of Jesus who invites us to come away, to enter into life with that one who is our rest, to enter into life in the, under that voice that tells us that we are your beloved sons and daughters and you are pleased in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.